The teacher said to young Johnny in uh, the fourth grade class, she said, now Johnny, if you have a dollar and your father gives you another dollar, how many dollars do you have? And Johnny said, one. And the teacher said, no, you'd have two. He said, no, I'd have one. She said, let me say it again. If you had a dollar and your father gave you a dollar, how many dollars would you have? And she said, and he said, one. She said, Johnny, you'd have two. If you ask your father for a dollar and you already had a dollar, that would equal two. He said, no, it would equal one. She says, Johnny, you don't know your math. She said, you don't, he said, you don't know my father. Uh, the point was, his father was not real quick to pass out a dollar bill. Uh, in Proverbs, as you guys know, who have been with us, you've got a father instructing a son through the entire book about how to live life. The job of a father is to equip his children to face what is out there. And God has a perspective, and it is the job of a father to pass that perspective on to the children. Uh, specifically, the sons are mentioned in Proverbs. And once again, tonight, in Proverbs 6, uh, there's no exception. Because in Proverbs 6, we start off, and right out of the blocks, he's addressing his son. Uh, notice, if you would, Proverbs 6, 1. My son, and, and I'll tell you up front what the issue is going to be. Last couple weeks, we've been in Proverbs 5, which talks about sexual self-control and avoiding adultery and the adulteress and the strange woman. But he shifts gears in Proverbs 6 and begins to talk about something that is very, very practical, and it's the, it's the issue of finances. Um, before I read the text, I got two words into the text. I got a question for you. Last week we were talking about sexual self-control. Fathers are supposed to teach their children about those things. Fathers are supposed to teach their sons about sexual self-control. We're going to see in a minute that fathers are also to teach their sons about how to avoid financial disaster. I have a question. My question is this. How many of you guys, your fathers were the, were the ones, your father told you about the facts of life in regard to sex. At some point in your life, he had a conversation with you and laid it out for you what sexuality was all about. If your dad did that, raise your hand. Okay, now I see just a small number of hands. That's usually the way it is. Um, now, if your father did not tell you about sex, if you learned it, as most guys do, from, you know, from your friends and and you know, locker room stuff, and, you know, most of that stuff is just absolute nonsense. But if you didn't learn it from your father, why didn't you learn it from your father? Probably because he didn't learn it from his father. Because he didn't learn it from his father. Because he didn't learn it from his father. Um, see, it's, it's hard to pass on. Let, let, let's, let's take the positive approach. If your dad talked to you had a conversation with you, and he was the one that laid out the whole thing for you, then when you assume that fatherhood role, and you have a son that's the age approximately that you were, when, you da when your dad talked with you, it's just going to come naturally. You say, well, you know what? Gosh, I need to talk to my son. Because it was modeled. It was demonstrated. You saw, you know what you're supposed to do. You saw your dad doing it. And you do that for your son, he'll probably do it for his son. See, there's a positive example that's passed on through the generations. But when, it's, it is, uh, when that role is vacated, then you have a vacuum that goes on for generations and generations. Now, let's, 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 let's switch from the, the concept of sexuality. How many of you guys, your dad at some point sat down and had a conversation with you about how to handle money and laid out some basic principles and talk to you real clearly and directly about how to handle your finances. How many of you guys? More hands, but, but not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. How many of you guys, your dad ever had a conversation with you about how to handle a cell phone? <laughs> Ooh, that was bad. That was just bad. I mean, I'll tell you. 
See, part of my conscience was frostbitten as well, and, and I've become very hard and callous from the weekend. I just couldn't pass that up. Um, see, Chuck would never do something like that on Sundays. He's very gracious. He's very kind. He's got me snowed. I mean, I don't think he'd do that, but anyway. Doesn't it make a difference when a father lays out some basic principles for a son to follow? And the reason it makes a difference is it gives you some parameters. It gives you some direction. Uh, every guy in this room, you look back somewhere in your life, and, and you could utter this tonight. I wish I had known that 20 years ago. I wish I had known that 30, however old you are. Um, a lot of times, I'll have guys come to me at, at a conference, and we're talking about, you know, being a spiritual leader of your family. I'll have guys come up to me, they're 60, 65 years. Man, I wish I had heard that 45 years ago. And the thing I always say to them is, you, wouldn't, you would not have wanted to have heard me 45 years ago. You'd want to hear the principles, but not me. We, we all have stuff. We wish, man, I wish I had known that. When a father um, initiates, and when a father sits down and gives instruction, it is to the advantage of the son, if the son will listen, if the son will, will have a teachable spirit and catch it. Because some errors, some basic errors, can be avoided if you've got the information. Now, the problem is, a lot of times, when we're young, we think we, think we know. And we're not real open, and we're not real teachable. Uh, but you guys that are here, that are in your 20s and your 30s, especially, um, you know, the Bible talks about the older men teaching the younger men. You can avoid a lot of mistakes if you can get with an older guy that's been down the trail ahead of you and had some experience. Um, you can learn from a guy like that if you'll have a teachable spirit and you can avoid some mistakes. So some of you guys that are in that age bracket, uh, you, if you know some of these guys around here and, and, and you know, you're, you're going through a hard time in marriage and you see a guy that's been married 40, 45 years, you know, take that guy to lunch. I mean, ask him about some things. Get some wisdom from him. If you buy him lunch, if you, he'll go with you if you buy lunch. He'll tell you everything he knows, you see? There's just wisdom in seeking out godly counsel. It's smart. Now, a lot of times a father can share it with the son, but the son doesn't want to listen. You can't make a son do what's right. You can't make a son respond. Uh, it's possible to raise a son in, in, in an environment of... Uh, of Christianity, where it's modeled, where it's lived out, where the Word of God is the center of the home, and for that child to grow up and not want to have anything to do with it. Now, sometimes it's because there was a credibility gap in the home, but sometimes it's just simply because you've got an individual with a will that wants to go their own way and their own direction. What is happening in Proverbs is he is attempting to get the attention of his son so that his son can avoid some difficulty down the road. That's the context. So in 6.1, he says, My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. Now, what is this all about? Um, what these first five verses are specifically about is the whole idea in our culture, we would call it co-signing alone for another individual. Now, in Israel, there was, it was part of the Old Testament law, you could not lend money to a fellow Jew at interest. You could loan them money, but you couldn't charge them interest because they were part of the covenant, they were part of the family, uh, they're part of the 12 tribes. Uh, this nation of Israel is an extended family unit. You, everybody traces themselves back to Abraham. Uh, everybody is part of one of the 12 tribes, so it's one big honking family reunion. They're all tied in together. So, does somebody have a need? They got a need. All right, you're going to loan them money? You loan them money. You can't charge them a dime interest because they're in the family, you see. Now, if money was loaned, 
And I want you to note something in 6 here. He says, if you've become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. See, a stranger is someone that's outside the camp. Uh, a, a stranger would be a Gentile. A stranger is someone who's not part of Israel, not part of the 12 tribes. They're not part of the covenant nation. Well, you see, if there was money lending going on outside the nation, it was at exorbitant interest rates. Very, very high. That's why the scripture has a lot to say about usury, about charging excessive amounts of interest, that it's wrong, that it's not moral. So that's the context of what's happening here. He, he is he's trying to, um, and that's just part of life, because, you know, as, as you get started, do, do, do you guys, how many of you guys, let's say they're uh, 40 and above, look back over the last 20 years, and there's at least one financial decision you wish you hadn't have made? <laughs> all right, and if you don't have your hand up, you're a liar. <laughs> we, we've all made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes financially. What he's attempting to do is to impress upon his son the importance of having some financial responsibility and not getting himself into a situation that is going to make him a slave, that is going to put him in a position where he is at the mercy of someone else. So that context, my son, if you become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. If you have been snared with the words of your mouth have been caught with the words of your mouth. And see, that's what happens when you're young. Sometimes you say something, you commit yourself, or you sign something before you really thought. It's an impulse. Uh, you're young, you're inexperienced. Now, an older guy is not going to, and this is what Solomon's saying, an older guy who's been on the pike, see, he's got some experience. What's experience? Experience is made, means that you made some mistakes and you got burned a couple times. All right, well, that's how you learn. So an older guy is not going to get drawn into a situation that, that will come up where he says, yeah, I'll do that. Sure, I'll, okay, sure, I'll, I'll sign off on that. Yeah, yeah, I'll guarantee that. See, a young guy, uh, an older guy is not going to do that. When you think of Abraham Lincoln, um, you think of integrity and you think of credibility you think of the fact that uh, he was very deliberate, that he was very careful, uh, that he was a man who planned and a man who uh, uh, was not up and down in terms of crazy decisions. Uh, you may remember this, that before he became an attorney, he owned a store. And his partner, he co-signed a note for his partner, a man that he really didn't know. Well, what happened was his partner, a man by the name of Barry, took off and left Abraham Lincoln as a young man in his early 20s with an indebtedness of $1,100. Now, back then, $1,100 was a heck of a lot of money. And it took him years to pay that thing off. Years. See, that's what we're talking about. Would Lincoln have done that when he was 45? No. But see, you've got, a, you've got an older man here addressing a younger. Younger guys are more susceptible because they don't have experience. They haven't been down the block. Although the tendency is to think, you know, I pretty much know what I'm doing here. The fact of the matter is we really don't know what we're doing. So as teachable as a young guy can be, the better off he's going to be in the long run. So, uh, this is something you want to avoid. So then notice, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Well, let's go on to the next verse. He says, do this then. In other words, if you've been caught in this, here's what you do, my son. Do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, or the palm of your neighbor, literally, go and humble yourself and importune your neighbor. In other words, what he is saying, that this is such a bad position to be in, that if you have put yourself as a cosigner and, and exposed yourself financially and you're paying exorbitant interest you go to that person humble yourself the idea here is humiliate yourself grovel if you will beg if you will to go to that person and try and get them to release you from that obligation because it is such a huge snare in your life 
Isn't that interesting that the Bible would be so specific on a specific issue like that? Uh, know what he says. He's not done yet. He says, give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. In other words, go take care of this. Don't let this hang over your head. Deal with this issue because you're a slave. I find it interesting in, um, in verse 2. He says, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth. Why would a young man, uh, how, how would somebody get into a situation like this? Uh, how did Lincoln get into a deal like that? Well, I wonder if Lincoln's dad ever talked to him about financial issues. My guess is he didn't. He was distant from his father. They didn't have a real close relationship. So here's Lincoln, young, sharp guy, and, you know, he's a go-getter, and, hey, he's put some money away. Let's do a store. He didn't know this guy from Adam. So he joins this guy, and they're doesn't know his character, he gets left holding the bag. See, what happens, what happens when you like that? It, it's, it's, it's impulse. Um, a lot of time, we say something. We, sign to, we make a financial commitment. Now, they have laws now. Because so many guys are stupid, they have laws to protect us from ourselves. We've all made stupid moves. So now they have certain laws. You can buy something and... You know, sometimes they have a three-day deal. I forget what they call it, but you know what I'm talking about. You can take it back. What do they call it? Buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse, yeah. So, you know, if you live in a kind of state that does that, you, maybe you can take it back in 72 hours. Well, they didn't have that back then. So a lot of times it's an impulsive decision that will get us into trouble. I want to show you an impulsive decision and show you how this happens in the life of a young man. Uh, turn me to uh, Genesis chapter 25. In Genesis 25, we are introduced to, uh, to Esau and Jacob. Uh, the Bible is so practical. The Bible is so down to earth. The Bible deals with real life issues um, uh, that, that, that we all deal with. Uh, if you notice chapter 27 of Genesis... Um, actually, actually, wait a minute. I got ahead of myself. I'm actually back in chapter 25. I'm sorry. Um, they were twins, Esau and Jacob. Notice uh, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. These two brothers are, are completely different, although, um, although they're twins. If you look at verse 23, uh, the Lord said to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. She's got two boys. So the first one was Esau, the second one is Jacob. So they grow up, Esau becomes a hunter. Jacob's a peaceful man. Look at verse 28. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. He's, out been, he's been hunting all day. He's out there doing his thing. You know, he's out there on his four-wheeler, and he's, he's hunting, and he's looking. You know, he's on a deer stand. And he comes in. He's exhausted. He's tired. And, and to show you the difference between these two boys, uh, Jacob's been home all day watching the Food Channel, and he's cooking this recipe. You talk about two boys. Isn't it amazing how boys can be so different? Have different interests. Of course, it's different. Uh, when Jacob cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Now, that, now, now that is a pretty big deal. Sell me your birthright. Ron Allen has written this. On birthright we, we don't it's not a part of our culture birthright is a right <clears throat> privilege or possession to which a person especially the firstborn son was entitled by birth in biblical times in Israel as in the rest of the ancient world the firstborn son enjoyed a favored position uh, it, it's also known as primogenitor that the firstborn would get 
the vast majority of the wealth from the father. Uh, his birthright includes a double portion of his father's assets upon his death. Part of the firstborn's benefits also were a special blessing from the father and the privilege of leadership uh, of the family in the next generation. Um, that's a big deal. Double the assets. Double the wealth. Uh, God had blessed this family. This was a family that was doing very, very well. And this guy comes in, this young guy, he's hungry. He sees a bowl of red beans and rice, and he says, hey, give me some of that. And his brother says, all right, uh, sure, some of your birthright. What's the guy say? Esau said, hey, I'm about to die. Was he about to die? No, he was just hungry. Uh, Hey, I'm I'm about to die, so what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised uh, his birthright. Isn't that amazing that a guy could have done that? And, uh, and then what happens if you go over to Genesis 27? Later what happens, well, we'll just read it, 27.1. This is years and years later. Now it came about when Isaac, their father, was old, and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said, this, he said Here I am. He said, Behold, now I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Part of, part of the birthright to the firstborn son was a special blessing. So Isaac has a sense that his day is very quickly coming. So go out and hunt. That dish you make up, you know, that venison, whatever that thing, hey, Fix me some of that, and I'm going to bless you. Well, what happened? Verse 5, Rebekah was listening, the wife. Now, who did she favor? She favored Isaac. Uh, she favored Jacob, I'm sorry. That's who she favored. So what she does, and many of you guys remember this story, um, uh, what, what she did was, while Esau was out hunting, uh, she set it up so that and I'm blanking, Jacob could go and deceive his father. Um, she tells him to prepare a dish. And then in verse 11, Jacob, in other words, hey, you go get the dish, I'll make the stew, and you go into your father and pretend you're your brother. Verse 11, Jacob answered his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Uh, perhaps my father will feel me, then I'll be as a deceiver in his sight. I'll bring upon myself a curse. Mother said to him, your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go and get them for me. Now, you got a problem here. you got a wife. And I'll guarantee you, this is not the first time something like this came up. In, in raising children, here's a principle. The husband and wife must present a united front to the children. You may disagree. You, you may disagree, but if you're going to disagree, you disagree in private. In front of the kids, you got to be a united front. This was not the first time this ever occurred. I'll guarantee you. Uh, This this was a dysfunctional outfit that was going on here. So what she does is she she gets these you know these old hairy stuff, puts all over this kid's arm, and you know the story. He goes in and goes before his dad, and and verse twenty two. Actually, verse 21, Isaac said to Jacob, Please come uh, close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob came close, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. So see, once again, Jacob, the deceiver, goes in, and he, not only did he get the birthright, now he's got, now he's got the blessing. And so what happens shortly thereafter, the brother comes back and finds out that his brother has gone in and taken, and, and look at verse 36. He said, is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two, two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, 
have you not reserved a blessing for me? But he had given it to the other boy. Now, what's interesting in this text, verse 36, he says, he took away my birthright. You know what? That's not really true. He didn't take it away. Esau was foolish and impulsive and gave it away. A decision he regretted for the rest of his life. Now, as we're sitting here, sure as shooting, there's a financial decision in your past that you regret to this day. You see. Now, so there's the impetus. There is the impetus, you see. Uh, one of the things that a father wants to, you want to help your son avoid mistakes that you made. So what do you do? You talk to him. You have a conversation. Uh, fathers are to have conversation with their sons. They're to talk about sex. They're to talk about money. They're to talk about football. They're to talk, you, you just talk. You're in the Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 passage where it talks about you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart and you shall talk of them uh, and you shall diligently teach them to your sons as you walk by the way, as you sit down, as you stand up, as you sit in your house, as you're outside. See, it's just part of life. The Lord's part of life and these different issues come up and we talk. See, here's the point, guys. Um, I, I was recently talking with uh, one of my boys and as we were talking, he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I got the confidence to be the leader I'm supposed to be. This is this past week. And I said, well, why, why, why is that? Well, well, you know, I don't, basically he's saying, I don't have it all figured out. I'm still working through it. And I said, you know what? Listen, le leadership, there, leadership is initiative and it's responsibility. And you know what? I see, I see you doing well on both those tracks. I really do. I see you taking initiative. I see you being responsible. And I see you taking a stand where you need to take a stand. Now, you would write all the time? No. But you know what? I see you're on the track. And, and listen, you, you, you're in your 20s, early 20s. You're still figuring this thing out. You're not going to pick this up overnight. But, but you know what? You're, you're on track, man. Don't, don't get too hard on yourself. You don't figure this stuff out overnight. But if you're taking initiative and you're taking responsibility, that's leadership. See, initiative is huge in leadership. Why is it that fathers don't talk to sons? Because it's uncomfortable. Well, you know, what do I say? Well, you see, that's why we don't, that's why we don't take initiative. We're not sure of ourselves. But, but it's it, because, see, it's high risk. And we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable. But see, that's leadership. You go ahead and you take the initiative and, 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 and you go out there and you do what you need to do. It's amazing to me how much the enemy keeps us from being effective by just the fear of failure. None of us want to fail. Well, we're going to fail. But that can't stop us from doing what needs to be done and taking initiative. If you don't take initiative at work, you're not going to work there a real long time. You've got to get out there and you've got to make it happen. Uh, same thing at home. So what are some of the principles that we should be giving instruction about and concerning to, to our sons as fathers and as grandfathers. Um, and, and I want to say this. I want to I mention this, guys. It, it, uh, just because you don't have kids under your roof doesn't mean you can't have a relationship and you can't have input. Now, things change when kids get older, but there still ought to be able to be a place for dialogue. Not the same kind of dialogue. Uh, it's not necessarily, you know, here's a father who's 40 talking to a son who's 15. It's more of a peer. It's a friendship. Sure, you're the father. But the relationship has changed. And, and, and fathers, the fathers who don't do well a lot of times, uh, they're still talking to a 35-year-old son like he was 15. You know, there's got to be some respect. There's got to be some... Uh, you guys getting what I'm saying? You, 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 yeah, you see? So what, what do you say? What are some of the things, some practical, it's amazing how much the Bible has to say about money. Uh, Crown Ministries uh, is, is a great ministry. It helps people with, with their finances. And a lot of folks get in trouble. They, and, and Crown Ministry will give them a plan and turn them around. It's really a wonderful ministry. 
And they just take biblical principles a lot of folks don't even know exist. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6. We'll get a couple shots from the scripture on some basic financial principles that, by the way, run counter to what we hear in this culture. Um, and that we hear all the time. Uh, it's interesting living in uh, what's known as North Dallas. It's interesting living in Frisco, isn't it? Because there's a lot of bucks and there's a lot of money. You know, Texas is a good state to live in economically. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no state income tax. You know, you live in California. Yeah, have you lived in California? See, you don't live there now, do you? Because they have a state income tax. I mean, I'm sure there are other factors, but that's a big honking chunk out of your check, you see? Uh, you buy gas in California, it's 50 cents more a gallon because of the hidden taxes, which are not so hidden. But they tax you 50 cents extra on every gallon more than they do here in Texas, you see? Um, why are so many companies moving into the Dallas area? Because the housing... Uh, prices of the 17 major metropolitan areas in the United States. Dallas and Houston have the lowest cost of housing. And you can buy a heck of a lot more house here than you can in a lot of other places. It's a good place to be financially. Um, but, but as a result, you know as I travel around, you know one of the things I notice about Dallas? There are more restaurants per square inch in Dallas than any other city I've ever been to in America. You guys that travel, you know what I'm talking about. I have never seen. And when we have family that comes in from California, you know what they always talk about? These restaurants, they're everywhere. I mean, they stack them up 14 deep along the freeway. And they're all, and you know what? The parking lots are all full. And it's Tuesday night. How can, and they, and they think, how can people afford to do that? Because they're not paying 9,000 bucks a month on a mortgage payment for a 1,200 square foot condo. That's why. There's, and, and, and a big chunk doesn't go into income tax in California, the state. See, there's more disposable income, so people have more money. And maybe you say, well, gosh, I mean, I, I have, I've been pretty discouraged. Well, you ought to be encouraged, because you don't live in some of these other states where it's much more oppressive. But what I'm saying is, even though it's a pretty good climate here, you can still get yourself in hot water. Now, where are we going? First Timothy 6? All right, I'm going to give you some verses here that are un-American, that are almost anti-American. And when I do this, the first thing I want to say is, uh, you could get the wrong impression on this, but the first thing I want to say, some people say, oh, you know, capitalism is a terrible thing. Capitalism is not a terrible thing. Now, it's like anything else, it can get out of control. Um, but capitalism is, is a system that enables people to improve their lot, and jobs are created, and good things can happen out of that. Now, it can be distorted, of course, but, um, you know, it's interesting, when, when you read what happened when uh, Stalin took control in Russia, and all the farms became collectives, uh, the, the, the yield per square per square acre was just horribly low. But every one of those farmers was given a certain amount of ground that they could grow um, uh, anything they wanted on that particular amount of land for their own personal family and for their own personal use. So they could do whatever they wanted. And the yields, the yields on those personal plots were almost 10 times greater than on the collectives. Why is that? There was no incentive You'd work your tail off, and you weren't going to get anything. But on this deal, it's a whole different story. Now, I give you that for a reason because of these verses. First uh, Timothy 6, verse 6. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Contentment is a wonderful thing. Now, hold on to contentment as we read. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Let me ask you something. How would you feel tonight if you had food and covering and that was it? I'd be hacked off. <laughs> Think about that. 
If I have food, if I had dinner, and I had some clothing, I had some covering, and that was all I had, I'd be upset with God. And so would you. Why? Because we're Americans. Because we have so much. And we'd look around. If you just had food and you just had clothing, you'd look around at everybody else who has much more than you, and you know what you would do? You'd be angry, and you'd be upset. Why? Because you have just compared yourself to those who have more. Remember the word contentment? The enemy of contentment is comparison. Comparison kills contentment. There's always somebody that has more. There's always somebody that has better. Always. Um, This is Paul talking. Now, did this come naturally to Paul, this contentment thing? No, because over in Philippians, he says, I have learned to be content. You see? It's It's tough to be content in a culture where there is so much. Uh, Contentment is really an elusive thing. Now let's go on. Here's verse 9. Here's the anti-American verse. Okay? But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge plunge men into ruin and destruction. As fathers, our sons need to know about this from us. You know, wait a minute. What's this saying? It says, but those who want to get rich. All right, so what does that mean? Well, let's talk about it. Does it say that those who want to provide well for their families fall into a temptation? No, it doesn't say that. Does it say those who want to work hard and provide a service and uh, build a business and employ others and help those others provide for their families? Is that a bad thing? Is that a wrong thing? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. It says those who want to get rich. See, if you do well, and if you want to provide and use your gifts and use your skills and, and work hard, uh, and you get financial uh, remuneration, uh, is that a bad thing? No. Because, you see, that's not wanting to get rich. Let me try to define this in the context. Those who want to get rich, catch this, those who want to get rich never experience contentment. There always has to be more. There always has to... Years ago, they asked John D. Rockefeller. At that time, wealthiest man on the face of the earth, Mr. Rockefeller. What would it take to make you happy? Just another million. Just another million. Now, a contemporary of Rockefeller was Andrew Carnegie. He was a guy that, uh, interesting guy, Carnegie, because as a young man who had come over from Scotland, uh, he had a lot of financial sense. Some guys, you know, everyone has different gifts. Have you noticed this? And, you, and don't you wish you had the gifts that you don't have? We always depreciate the gifts God's given us because we see our weaknesses, and then we see guys that are strong where we, where we are weak, and we wish we had those gifts. You can't be strong in every area. Um, uh, see, some guys in here, when I said maybe you never made a big financial error, you know what's possible? Some guys, maybe you didn't make a financial error. Quite frankly, Carnegie didn't make financial errors. He had such a sense of money, and he had such a head for business, that, uh, and he was so thrifty, that quite frankly, that guy really never made a bad move financially. Now, there were other areas of his life where he had regrets and where he had made bad moves. See, everybody in this room you could say, I wish I had have known that X amount of years ago. Uh, maybe it's not financially. Maybe that's a gift you have. But you don't have all the gifts. What I'm saying is we're all screwing up somewhere. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. 
you don't have it together in every area of your life, you know. Andrew Carnegie had it together financially because as a young man, he got a job with the telegraph company. And what he, decided, what he figured out was he could, live, he could live very, very carefully and save his money. And he did that. And he deprived himself. And he didn't buy certain things that some of his peers were buying. And what he did was then he started to invest that money that he'd saved. And before you know it, this guy is right up there with Rockefeller. He felt, as he got into his late 50s, he felt that it was a terrible thing for a man to die with excessive wealth. So you know what he decided to do? He decided to give it away. And in his lifetime, before he died, he had personally built over 8,000 public libraries with that money. Now see, there was a guy that got it. See, uh, Mr. Rockefeller, how much will it take you? How much will it, will it take to make you happy? Just another million. You know, you know what Carnegie would say? What would it take me just to give away another million? See, he captured. Those guys are both rich. They're both rich by the world standard. Here's what I'm saying. You can take two guys that have the same amount of income. Let's say it's 10 million a year. And let's say and they got the same net worth and the whole thing. By the world standard, they're rich. But that doesn't mean that they're exactly the same. Because one of those guys wants to get rich, the other guy doesn't. Same net worth, same amount of income. It's always fascinating to me when guys uh, decide to run for uh, office, political office, they've got to release their income tax. And one of the fascinating things to me is when you find out how much this particular individual what their charitable giving was. Man, it's embarrassing. It's just flat out embarrassing. Um, extremely wealthy, but they give perhaps you know, less than 1%. I remember years ago uh, taking a course down at the seminary, Dallas Seminary, and uh, one of the professors, I can't remember who it was, but was talking about the fact that he'd just been audited by the IRS. And it was the third time he'd been audited. And he was talking about how many other professors at DTS had been audited. And he says, really, you know, it, it really was kind of funny because professors at DTS, especially back then, weren't, weren't paid a lot of money. And so that's why they were always out on the weekends preaching because they, they were trying to, you know, just get enough to make it and seminaries getting by. But why were they auditing all these professors from Dallas Seminary? Because of their charitable giving. Some of them gave 10%, 15%. Some of those guys gave 20% of their income. And it, it would red flag the IRS. So the IRS guy, they're always down running around Dallas Seminary. Now, those guys weren't getting rich to begin with. But see, they were givers. And they knew the word of God, and they knew the greatest financial principle that's ever been written on the face of the earth, which is give, and it shall be given unto you. You see? It's a father's responsibility to teach that to a son. Uh, so you take a guy net worth and, you know, 10 million, whatever, and you go down the line, line by line, and see, the guy who wants to give rich, when you get to giving, it's going to be minuscule, and it's going to be embarrassing. The guy who doesn't want to get rich, the guy who has a lot of money, but Christ, see, Jesus said you can't love God and mammon. That's mammon. You can't love God and money. One or the other is going to be number one in your life. Over the years, I've met guys that God has blessed, and guys in this church are guys in here. God's blessed you. Um, I, I've, I've, I've known of guys who've done very well, and as they were doing well, their goal was, their goal was not to give 10%. Their goal was to live on 10% and get to where they could give 90%. And they, I, I know a guy that I know for years. He dropped dead of a heart attack three years ago. Uh, that's how he lived. Uh, he, his, his father died. They had a little tiny business in San Francisco. He got it from his dad. 
And he built that thing. They had 35 offices across the United States. That, that guy was wealthy. He lived in a nice house. But not a, what you'd expect. You know what his joy was? It was building the kingdom of God. And he set up upon his death. You know, his wife's comfortable and she's taken care of. And his kids have a little nest egg. Not as much as you'd think. And some of them were kind of ticked off about it. But as he told me, he said, I'm not going to ruin those kids. He was very wise. And all of that money, what it does, it supports significantly 200 different ministries every month. And where is he? He's in heaven. <laughs> That's pretty wild, isn't it? See, those who want to... Now, if you want to get rich and you just want the money, and see, that's a temptation and a snare. But see, our culture doesn't tell us that. There's no balance. There's, and, and see, once again, what's, what's the benchmark? Well, if you, are you not able to experience contentment with all that you have? He goes on and says... But the love of money, what did Jesus say? You can't love God and money. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Hey, you've got to have money. You've got to have bucks. You've got to pay the bills. You've got to put kids through college. And so we work, and we work hard. That's the way it works. But there's a difference between uh, needing money to take care of the essentials of life and loving money. There's a huge difference. Look at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich. Did you catch that? Instruct. Teach. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Not to be conceited. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But on God who richly supplies us with all things to what? Enjoy. Is it not sad? And we see it all the time. Is it not sad to, to see someone who has so much, quite frankly, who by the world's is rich, but they don't enjoy it. They can't enjoy it. Why? Because they're not satisfied with it. There's no contentment. Now, see, that's instruction that needs to be given to sons. About uh, five years ago in the uh, Phoenix airport, I was out of books, and I found this book by Stephen Poland called Die Broke. Uh, it's a pretty good book. Uh, what's he say on here? He says, the last check you write should be to the undertaker, and it should bounce. <laughs> this guy's got a lot of common sense. There's a lot of biblical principles in here. And the guy's got a great sense of humor. You see? And basically what he's saying is, this guy's not a believer. He's saying, don't buy into this nonsense. Um, let me give you a shot. Let's see if I can find this. Um, oh, uh, this guy's great. Uh, he writes on a uh, Macintosh Plus computer. I, had a Mac I started on a Macintosh Plus computer. Uh, what, would, what would that have been in the '85? Uh, someone said, "All right, '85." That was my first computer. And he tells a story that it's what he does to do his correspondence, and he writes on it, and he does his bookkeeping. Wow. Uh, it's been as upgraded as far as possible. But recently, he said that the seven key uh, malfunctioned, so he goes in to get the seven key fixed. And the guy looked at him and said, "You got to be kidding me." He said, "We use these things for doorstops." And, and he said, we don't even repair it. It costs you 200 to repair it. He said, you could buy a new one. You, you could buy a new Mac. Back then, he said, you could buy a new Mac for 1800 bucks. He said, but I can repair this for 200 right? And the guy said, yeah, but why would you want to do that? Because this is faster. This is, that, 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 you know, that's good graphics. He said, yeah, but I don't do any of that stuff. All I need is a 7 key. <laughs> so why should I spend 1800 when 200 will cover me and do exactly what I need? And he tells a story, and he said, this guy looked at me like I was from another planet. Uh, he says, the same approach must be applied to all your purchases. 
buy a new winter coat or a stereo or a briefcase or whatever, only when your old one no longer fits, can no longer be clean, or is beyond repair. Now, you know what? Our parents understood that. Uh, uh, my dad grew up in the Depression. A lot of you, you know. Some of you guys are the age of my dad. And you grew up, you remember those days. Uh, but you see, this generation didn't grow up in Depression. We got everything. I was in Barnes & Noble last week. I found this book called Trading Up. Why consumers want new luxury goods and how companies create them. And it's a book that describes the fact that people are reaching way beyond their means to buy certain luxury items that they really can't afford and that companies and businesses should be aware of this and construct your business accordingly for the profits that are available to you. And on the front, you've got logos of different companies that have done this. At the very top is Viking. Now, what is that? A bunch of warriors from the, you know. Now, Viking, cooking equipment. Stoves. Stoves. You ever seen a Viking stove? They're expensive. They're the Lexus. They're not the Lexus. They're the, they're the Maserati Ferrari of stoves. About five years ago, our stove hit the, hit the skids. And Mary calls me and says, the stove's, you know, we gotta get, I said, fine. So she's going out. She calls me from the Sears outlet. And she found one, and I was running out. She said, why don't you come by and look? So I go over there. You know, I'm really excited about this. <laughs> so she wanted me to, so I go by. And it looks like, we, we, we got a gas, you know, thing. And, it, and it's got that kind of stainless steel, it's the look. And it's got the big, black things on the top you set the stuff you know the big grids it kind of looks has that look but it's not a viking it's a kenmore and it's the sears outlet it was like 550 or 595 you know pretty good deal had a little ding in the back you couldn't see i put it in there when they weren't looking <laughs> anyway she had a very close friend who was building a new house at that particular time. And, uh, and they were doing their kitchen and bought a Viking stove. Now, from a distance, I mean, you know, the stoves kind of look similar. Um, as I recall, that was the low end. It was 4,500 bucks. I think they go, they go, they go into double digits. 10, 11, 12,000 bucks. Um, And these guys know this. So you got Viking, um, Samuel Allen's beer. You know, there, there are premium brands. And now, now, why do people want to do this? See, you take this and compare it with this. Uh, in here, he talks about the, the two economists that have affected uh, our culture. The first one is Adam Smith. He says, in a nutshell, the only way anyone can understand economic theory, Smith preached that it was savings that led a country into prosperity. But FDR and his new dealers, desperate to get the country going in the Depression, listened to a different theory, one associated with John Maynard Keynes. Keynes. He believed that it was consumption, spending, not thrift, savings, that led a country to prosperity. Well, See, sons need to know. And see, what happens? You're going to buy one of two philosophies, and we've all done the one and gotten burned, and that's where you get experience. Um, when, when people spend their lives trying to go after that elusive dream, uh, at some point they're going to be disappointed, and it's going to blow up in their face. This guy, David uh, Bach, or David Bach, if you will, he wrote a book called The Automatic Millionaire. And I bought two of those. I bought those for my kids. And, and basic, not that I necessarily want them. Well, I do. I want them to be filthy rich. <laughs> I'll just come out and tell you, that's my goal for their life. 
No, I, I don't. But you know what? I have a responsibility as a father to teach them some basic principles about life. And in his book, The Automatic Millionaire, I mean, it's a title that you know people who want to get rich buy. It's a very sane book. In fact, in there he talks about tithing. I don't think he's a Christian. But one of the things he talks about is that if he uses what he calls the, the latte principle, and you've probably heard this, that if you didn't spend $48 a day on a cup of coffee at Starbucks, or whatever, you know, if you didn't spend the four bucks and you put that away, and then he talks about if you just had it automatically deducted and you started when you were 22 or 23, you know, and he just runs the numbers. Well, he's come out with a new book called Start Late, Finish Rich. Once again, a title that a lot of people, but he describes this lady that came to him named Harriet who was in her uh, mid-50s and uh, she was up to her eyeballs in debt. Uh, she couldn't sleep. Uh, she had tremendous anxiety. Uh, she said, uh, I have just gone to a financial advisor and he's looked at my financial situation and he has told me that I need to start saving $2,700 a month to put myself in the position that I need to be in when I hit my 70s. And uh, she said, my take home is 3500 a month. There's no way I can do this. So he asked her this question. He said, um, and, and this guy's just, you know what this guy's doing? He's instructing someone who'd never been instructed. He's instructing someone that got themselves in big trouble, like the son in Proverbs 6 got themselves in trouble. And here's basically what he said to her. He said, let me ask you a question. Do you think it would be, there's no way you can do 27 a month. That's, that's just over one. Do you think you could possibly work it so you could save $10 a day? And she said, well, well, yeah, I think I could. He said, you know, you brown bag it instead of buying lunch. And you, yeah, she said, I could do $10. He said, do you think your husband could do $10 a day? She said, I think he could too. Yeah, I think, you know, so that's 20 bucks a day. He said, if you do $20 a day times 365 days a year, at the end of that year, you're going to have $7,300. She was shocked. Uh, he said, let's say that you could get, you invest that money and you get 10% on it. And you, you know, you, you're gonna, you, you, know it's, you can't always get 10, but you're gonna shoot for 10. If you did that and you got 10% of your money and you put $20 away in 20 years, what you're worried about, in 20 years, you'd have $461,000, almost $462,000. And then he said to her, by the way, where you work, do they have a, uh, uh, like a 401k retirement plan? A pot, do, do they match contributions? And she told him what they would match. He said, then forget the numbers I just gave you. If you were to simply do that, $20 a day plus a 50% match, he added the numbers up, that's 10950 a year. In 20 years, you'd have 692000 almost $693,000. Her anxiety level went down because somebody instructed her about the basics financially. Isn't that interesting? Now here's the deal. You can put together a financial plan. I've done it and you've done it. And you know what? Sometimes financial plans blow up in your face. There are guys in this room, uh, and uh, I mean I don't know that you're here, but I would imagine there are guys in this room that had a financial plan. I remember talking with a guy maybe four years ago, and uh, he was in his early 40s, and he told me I had over $3 million put away for retirement. He says, they're all in the stock market. You know how much I've got now? He said, how much you have? He said, I got zero. He said, I lost a lot. That's a lot of money to make up. This guy's a believer. You know, you know what he also told me? He said, I got to tell you something. I feel better about life than I felt when I had the money. This guy, this guy yeah, was a physician. He said, you know what I'd do? between seeing patients. You know what I'd do all day long? I'd, I'd get on the internet and I'd check my accounts. I wanted to know. I, I, was always, I was always checking them. And I was always thinking about them. And I was always, even at night, I had trouble sleeping because I was always, and he said, you know what? I, I've lost a bunch, but he, but he said, I gotta tell you something. Uh, I believe in the promises of God. And he said, I, I've had to, basically start from scratch. And he said, you know what, we've seen God come through for us in some amazing ways. He said, I've got some stories just in the last year 
that I'm going to share with my kids. How God has shown his faithfulness. And now my focus, he said, I love the Lord, but he said, my, I, I got distorted. I got off, and that became so big in my life. He said it became a lot bigger in my life than it should have. And he said, and he said I got to tell you something. I don't have near the money that I used to have, but he said, I got to tell you something. I'm living on the promises of God, and I've got a contentment and an enjoyment that I didn't have a couple years ago. Isn't that interesting? The old Puritan Thomas Watson used to say, God often prospers us by impoverishing us. Sometimes God will bless you by taking something away. Uh, money can get our hearts, guys. We've got to have it. We've got to have it to make it. But he's got to come first. Is this making any sense? So talk to your sons. Have a conversation. And, uh, and if they need a buck, don't give it to them. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the practicality of your word. Now, Lord, we, we don't want to go off the deep end here. We, we've, we, hey, we all, we've got mortgages. We've got tuition to pay. We need to set money aside for the future. We're not saying that's wrong. It's not wrong. It's something we need to do. But Lord, we also want to say that we don't want to depend on that. First Timothy 6 talks about the uncertainty of riches. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. So our dependence is not upon the money. Our dependence is upon you. Thank you that you've promised to meet every need that we have. Sometimes you bring it in ways that we would never expect. Uh, sometimes, Lord, things come our way that, that we wouldn't even consider. But it's something that you have, and it doesn't fit our thinking or our ways. Lord, we just never know what you're going to do. But you've promised to meet all of our needs, and we glory in that, and we thank you for it. Help us to learn from our mistakes. Help us to be wise. Help us to seek good counsel in this area of our lives. Help us to pass it on to the next generation. And above all, Lord, help us to be givers. Help us to be generous men. Because when we're generous, you are amazingly generous with us in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.